Hey everybody, you're listening to the Jimmy's Table podcast, jimmystable.com. I am your host, Jimmy Humphrey, where I like to have conversations about faith, life, culture, and sometimes food. Today is episode 22, where I'm going to be talking about why I don't own a gun and why I would never kill someone. Before we get into it, I'd like to read this provocative, thoughtful quote that I came across on Twitter um, and, uh, I, I, it got me to thinking and I put it out there on the Facebook page for those of you, uh, who follow me on Facebook. Um, and we had some good conversation around this and, uh, somebody, uh, asked, Corey asked if, uh, I would further share my own views on the issues of guns and violence, uh, especially as it relates to Christianity, the Bible, theology, and all that sort of stuff. I've kind of been one to drop uh, things out there over the years of, of uh, kind of, I guess you could say, uh, anti-war, anti-violence sort of rhetoric. But I've never really sat down and given a full explanation as to what I believe and why I believe it. Um, so today's show is going to be all about that. But first, this quote uh, from Caleb Kesterson, I believe is how you say his name, and this was on Twitter. And Caleb said, I've learned way more about anti-war and nonviolent ethics from libertarians and anarchists than I have from my fellow Christians. This is amazingly tragic and a damning indictment. Pretty powerful stuff there, Caleb. Um, whoever you are, <laughs> I don't know who Caleb is. I just came across this uh, this quote has a retreat a wheat retweet. <laughs> say that ten times fast uh, on uh, Twitter, and it really got me to thinking because I've realized as somebody who considers themselves a fairly conservative-minded um, individual. Um, uh, who considers themselves an evangelical uh, Christian, um, that there is indeed something tragic and damning um, in this quote from Caleb who says he's learned more about being anti-war and non-violent uh, and his ethics from libertarians and anarchists than he has his fellow Christians. Ouch, step on our toes, especially in a day and age where as Christians, it seems like our rhetoric regarding violence, regarding guns, regarding war, is really almost indistinguishable from the rest of America, um, from uh, really the rest of the world. As Christians living in America, as evangelical Christians who claim to believe in Bible and blame, believe in Jesus and take him at his word and believe him quite literally, you know, we have been individuals who kind of, uh, you know, shake off those hard parts of the Bible where Jesus talks about not being violent. Uh, in fact, we, we love our Old Testament violence quite much uh, when it comes to the topic of violence and uh, most conversations that I see uh, that we have as Christians um, regarding um, violence ends up being about, well, what about the Old Testament? What about David? What about Joshua? What about Moses? What about, what about, what about? And I think we use those whatabouts ultimately to kind of discount and soften and weaken any thoughts that Jesus might have had, that the apostles might have had regarding violence. Um, and we use those Old Testament verses essentially to cancel out Jesus in the New Testament um, and what he had specifically uh, to say. Because frankly, when, it, when we get right down to it, we find the Old Testament views of war and violence to be much more in keeping with our American uh, values, especially our revolutionary fighting spirit, our, our, our patriotism, our sense of nationalism, our sense of uh, God bless America, land that I love, you know, and 
and you know all the the great feel goods that we have regarding the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms without it being uh, you know any way regulated. Um, and when we see the magic or the tragic uh, shootings of uh, and outbreaks of violence that we occasionally see uh, in the media, um, we have no answer. We have no word from God. We have no message from the gospel other than to say, well, men shouldn't kill one another. And that's all we have to say about that. So we just need to have a change of heart uh, so that men stop killing one another. Uh, and uh, that is all. <laughs> Yet, you know, at the first instance and threat and provocation from somebody else, uh, we're willing to stand up with and cling to our Bibles and our guns. If, you know, I might quote President Obama. Um, and I'm not a big President Obama fan. Um, but, uh, you know, I, th I think the man had a point uh, in regard to that. We, we cling to our Bibles and our gun. Um, and we do so without any thoughts of hypocrisy or contradiction. Um, and we see ourselves as standing in the uh, tradition of violence that comes um, from the Old Testament and never consider anything that Jesus has to say on the matter. Our, our ethic on violence and guns and war and all that sort of stuff is essentially kill or be killed. Uh, and we unquestionably baptize every war we fight in as a nation, uh, we as evangelicals never even so much as question the ethics of it. In fact, we're often some of the first to sign up uh, to fight in whatever war um, that our country might be engaging in on the other side of the world without any thoughts about the ethics of doing so. Um, our view is ultimately indistinguishable from that of the world. And we go around and act like uh, the Second Amendment of the Constitution is some sort of commandment from God or a line in the Apostles' Creed. You know, as I said in a previous podcast, and you can find a link to it in the show notes, um, and you can find it at the jimmystable.com website and Apple and Spotify and all that sort of stuff. We're far too American <laughs> in our views of things, and... We have developed a view, I believe, of uh, war and violence and guns that is very American and very much in keeping with the Constitution of the United States. Um, but we have exalted that view over that of anything to do with Jesus Christ and the teachings of the apostles and the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. And when we get into questions about these things, um, you know, I, I believe we need to start asking better questions because all of our questions, any top, anytime I have a discussion on this uh, topic, you know, the question inevitably resorts to, well, what about Hitler? Or what about if Hitler breaks into your house and rapes your wife and your mother and your daughters and your sons and kills them? What are you going to do, you pacifist you're just going to stand by and lovingly watch your family get slaughtered um and that inevitably becomes our line of questioning and i believe when that is our line of questioning we're going to get the answers wrong every single time because we are asking the wrong questions instead of asking what do we do about hitler and how do we kill hitler and how do we kill somebody who breaks into our house uh, to harm our family and to rape and kill our wives and children. Um, instead, we need to ask better questions. I believe in my heart of hearts that instead of asking such questions, we need to ask, who is Jesus Christ? What did he come to accomplish? What did he teach us? And now, how ought we to live in light of those things? And only once we have answered those questions can we dare even begin to answer questions regarding Hitler and home intruders and rapists and serial killers and those who would harm us and our loved ones. Um, but until we have answered those questions, we have 
um, regarding who Jesus is and what he has taught us on how we should live, um, we have no right to even begin to answer the questions of what do you do about a home intruder? Because if you're going to just sit there and say, well, what do we do about a home intruder? Um, you know, then we're going to have the same answer every single time. Uh, and the answer is not going to be any different than if you were to ask a Muslim or an atheist about what do you do about a home intruder? Um, so as kind of a disclaimer before we get into this, though, I, I just want to share a little bit about me. As I stated, uh, I'm an evangelical Christian. I consider myself a pretty conservative individual, kind of libertarian leanish uh, in my political perspectives. So just full disclosure, read into it what you want um, regarding that. Uh, I am not a liberal. I am not a Democrat. Uh, I'm politically an independent, uh, but I've tended to to vote uh, Republican 99% uh, of the time. Occasionally I voted for a Democrat, just so you know. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I come from a family that's pretty conservative. Uh, I come from a family uh, with many military veterans who have served in every single branch of the military, um, from infantryman to officer level. Um, many in my family, family own guns i have shot a gun before and i'm perfectly comfortable around a gun if you show me a gun i'm gonna be aware that a gun is in the room with me but uh i'm not gonna be scared at, out of my mind and and think oh my god there's a gun what do i do i'm gonna just be like oh there's a gun hey what kind of gun is it that's kind of cool <laughs> um and I am an individual, though, who has had a change of heart over the years. I used to believe in just war theory. I used to believe uh, in all the typical things that uh, most people believe uh, regarding war and violence and guns uh, that are conservative-minded individuals. Uh, and I believe these things through Bible college and seminary. But sometime after then, I began to have a change of heart. Uh, and that change of heart ultimately came from a place in which um, I found myself asking different sets of questions and being ultimately allowing myself just to be radically challenged by the teachings of uh, the Bible in regard to violence. Not only in regard to the New Testament, um, but even some of the Old Testament teachings regarding violence uh, and war and weaponry and such things. I found myself challenged by it and realized that my perspective about war and violence and the Second Amendment and, and all those sort of issues weren't necessarily uh, in line with the teachings of Jesus. So to go ahead and proceed at this point, I'd like to go ahead and get to it. And I'd like to give a general biblical survey um, from both Old and New Testaments um, regarding violence. I'm going to say up front that this is not going to be an exhaustive view of all the verses, both for and against such a thing. I realize there are verses I could include in here um, that, you know, you might make some legitimate points at regarding violence and uh, other such things. However, with that said, uh, I want to go ahead, and since this is my show, my podcast, and people have asked me about my perspective, I want to share what I believe is the best argument for these, uh, for my view on these things, and to share where my heart is ultimately um, coming from on this. And I hope that in sharing and talking about these verses that we're going to read, uh, I hope that I can persuade you on the matter, um, and that uh, you know maybe you would experience something of the change of heart that I have. And even if you're never able to come all the way uh, with me on this issue, um, I hope maybe maybe take an inch or two step in the direction that I'm currently walking. I don't claim to have all the answers to all the questions. Um, and I realize there are some tough ones out there. But with that said, I want to show you what I believe the Bible ultimately teaches about violence, um, war, carrying of weapons, 
um, and to look at such not only from an Old Testament perspective, but a New Testament as well. So without much further ado, let us begin. So the first point I would like to make on this topic is one that I think is often overlooked, and I've never actually seen somebody argue this perspective Although I think, you know, I'm sure someone out there has. <laughs> but in all my reading and studying of the matter, I have yet to see anybody make this first argument. In the beginning, God didn't permit violence. Killing someone in response to murder or violence wasn't even permitted by God until after the flood. Capital punishment wasn't permitted when Cain killed Abel. In fact, Cain was worried that someone would kill him um, in response to his killing of Abel. However, God ultimately marked Cain and forbade somebody killing Cain in response to Cain killing Abel. In Genesis 4, 14 through 15, we read that, Behold, you have driven me from this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Kind of interesting to think about there that in response to the first murder in the world, Adam and Eve didn't come out and say, well, you know, Cain has killed our son Abel uh, or, um, you know, somebody nearby living in the area, you know, would have known of such and might have thought, well, we should take revenge on Cain uh, for his killing of Abel. We should bring Cain to justice. Well, God ultimately marked Cain and said, uh, hey, no, I'm not going to allow that. And if somebody does kill Cain, then God basically says, I'm going to take vengeance on him sevenfold. Um, so it shows from the beginning um, that God's response to violence um, was not immediately, well, you know, somebody was killed, um, so therefore their life has to be taken um, sort of mentality. So instead of believing in capital punishment um, from the beginning, we see that capital punishment uh, was in no way God's intention for this world or for mankind. And if I might make an argument from Genesis, um, you know, uh, in the same keeping of Jesus, when Jesus, you know, talked about marriage uh, and saying, in the beginning it was not this way. Well, let me tell you in the same spirit of which Jesus said in Matthew 19 about it not being in the beginning this way. I would argue that uh, in the beginning, it was not this way in regard to violence, capital punishment, war, um, justice, and all that sort of stuff. Um, so this is something to definitely consider. However, <laughs> with that said, um, we do see that after the flood, for whatever reason, and I don't know that reason, so, you know, you may have a good answer as to why this is the case. But we see that um, that uh, this was ultimately changed, though. In Genesis 9, after the flood, God said, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Um, and my only thought about why... God had a change of heart um, to go from not being a fan of capital punishment to saying that capital punishment was now uh, permissible and even, one could argue, commanded. Um, I, I think of a verse in Galatians 3.19 where the Apostle Paul says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So we see in Genesis 9, 6, I would, I would argue, and I could be wrong on this, but uh, in, in my verse, I'm not going to lie, maybe ever so slightly out of context um, when, when, you know, Paul was specifically speaking in Galatians 3 about the law, but he says the law, these, these other things um, that Paul says were basically added. They were added because of transgressions. So because of murder, 
um, and the violence that had been done in the world and the bloodshed that had been done in the world and the carrying away of it uh, that uh, had taken place prior to the flood, God basically said as a check on society um, that uh, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall ultimately be shed. And, uh, you know, I would say that Paul would argue, um, if I might so intuit uh, Paul, and again, I humbly submit I could be wrong here, uh, but Galatians 3.19, why was the law added then? It was added because of transgressions, and but that wasn't added forever, according to Paul. It was added, the law, he said, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made, and we know from Galatians that seed is ultimately Jesus Christ. So in whatever temporary, uh, I believe this, this law that uh, was put forth in Genesis 9 and 6, that whoever sheds a man's blood by his man, uh, by man his blood shall be shed, uh, that such a law, if you can call it that, um, was added ultimately because of sin, but it was only temporary. And it was only temporary until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. And we see this temporary attitude of, of God, I believe, next um, regarding violence uh, and war and capital punishment and those sort of things. And point two I'd like to make here um, is that the hope of the Old Testament prophets uh, ultimately envisioned a world free from violence under the reign of the Messiah. So the, the, the law that was added that, uh, you know, Capital punishment was a, a just thing to do. Um, was but a temporary one. And the, the prophets looked forward into a time uh, in which such a thing would no longer um, ultimately be required. We see two prophecies I like to point out as chief among this hope. In fact, uh, the, the prophecies are almost identical to one another. And we can see this in Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. And Micah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, in which Micah has just one little additional um, verse or two to add to the prophecy. Uh, so I'll read the part from Isaiah, and then I'll read the kind of expanded version from Micah. But I would encourage you, when you have the opportunity, uh, compare the two passages, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah said, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And Micah adds to, the, to this passage in uh, chapter 4, verses um, 4 and 5, he says, and each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all of the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You know, some things I'd like to point out about this is that this passage, this prophetic, these prophetic passages in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, you know, they're ultimately a picture of the coming of the kingdom of God the reign of Jesus Christ and the Messiah. Um, and, you know, there would be some who would say, though, well, this is only for the millennium or this is only in eternity. Um, but if you have such a perspective as, you know, I once did, actually, I when I was in Bible college in my Christian ethics classes, I did a, uh, an essay on Isaiah chapter 2, and that's what I ultimately concluded. I concluded, hey, this is for after Jesus comes back, and uh, this is, you know, purely in the future, and this has nothing to do with the present. Um, however, I don't believe that is true anymore. Um, and first, 
you see in verse 2 of Isaiah 2, it says it will come about in the last days. Well, if you know anything about the Bible, <laughs> the book of Acts, uh, the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, quoting the, uh, the prophet Joel, uh, talked about how the last days began 2,000 years ago. And since then, my friends, you and I, since the coming of Jesus, since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, and since the, the kingdom of God was inaugurated with uh, the coming of Jesus, you and I have been living in the last days. And you and I have been living in this passage of Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4. Uh, we are seeing about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the hills and raised above all the nations with many peoples coming to it, saying, Let us go to the mountain of the house of the Lord, the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. That is ultimately the exaltation of the kingdom of God. That is about the word of the Lord going forth from Jerusalem, which it has um, from Jerusalem to Judea to the uttermost ends of of the earth uh, and we have seen the nations streaming to the kingdom of god that jesus has established um, and we are seeing people learn of his ways so that they can walk in his path um, and while there's still yet a future judgment um you know we do see i believe uh the response though to this the teachings of Jesus, um, and while we still wait the full consummation of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns, um, you know, this kingdom is still very much a reality that we live in the present, um, but ultimately, even though we may have yet a down payment of it, and just be living, uh, and we may be living, quote-unquote, between the times and the, quote-unquote, already and not yet aspect of the kingdom of God, um, this passage is still a reality for the present age, and it isn't just something in the future. And what does this passage teach us? That in response to the people coming up to the house of the God of Jacob so that they can learn of his ways and walk in his paths, um, it says um, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn more. I believe Verse 4 is the re proper response to verse 3. As a result of learning about the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus ultimately taught us about uh, in, in his life and through the apostles, um, that our response is that we should ultimately be a people who hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's a fancy way of saying their swords became instruments for harvest and gardening um and i would like to see <laughs> if i might be so bold as to say um that our response to um such things um as violence um in light of the teachings of jesus that we would lift up our or that that we would hammer our swords into plowshares and spears into printing hooks that we would turn our guns into such things as well um, and that we would never again learn war. Um, and that should be our response as disciples. That should be our postures as disciples, as people who transform their weapons into things for harvest and hunting, um, and who never again learn war. Um, but instead of such, I think we often become a people who prefer to learn war and things about the Second Amendment and our rights. Um, and we take the posture of that of the rest of the world instead of the posture of that of a disciple. Um, and, you know, we can, we can note that, um, you know, one thing I also notice in this passage here is Sword, you know, people might say, well, that'll be just strictly the future in which we won't have need for swords and such things anymore. Um, and while, again, there is some truth to that, because this does ultimately, you know, kind of telescopically look into the, the future. Um, you know, the fact is, these people have swords to beat into plowshares. 
It's not that swords no longer exist and that they live in a world free from swords or um, a, a world free from war. Um, but they live in a world in which they take their swords and transform them into plowshares and into pruning hooks. Um, and that should be, I believe, as Christians, our response ultimately to the kingdom of God, to the teachings of Jesus, to the teachings of of the apostles and we need to take the the attitude that we see in micah 4 verse 5 where it says though all the peoples walk each in the name of his god as for us we will walk in the name of the lord our god forever so you can see even in isaiah's prophecy isaiah still anticipates that not you know all the world will be in complete submission to jesus and the gospel um, but there will still be people walking in the name of their own gods and all that go with that. But as for us, Micah says, in the name of our Lord and God, we will walk forever. That needs to be our attitude as Christians. Um, and um, I fear that it's not. <laughs> I fear that it's not because we've not allowed the weight of such prophetic statements and the teachings of Jesus to ultimately... Um, sanctify every aspect of our hearts and we still hold on to some very worldly ways of thinking. So now I would look, like to look specifically at what Jesus and the apostles taught about nonviolent resistance. Um, and it should be noted that not only did they teach these things, but they practiced these things. To the point that they all gave their own lives. Um, well, you know, a couple of the apostles didn't die uh, as a result of being martyred or killed. Um, but <laughs> the majority of them did. Um, but they were all, without a doubt, persecuted. Um, and like Jesus and the apostles, they, they never resisted. Uh, they never fought back. Um, and they gave their lives to the point of death and never attempted to hold on to their lives or count it as so sacred or so dear that they could not give up their lives. Um, and why is this though? Well, we see, I believe now since the coming of Jesus in light of the Jesus being aware and the apostles being aware of the prophecies, uh, around the old Testament, um, regarding Isaiah and Micah and the kingdom of God. Um, we believe that with the coming of Jesus, Jesus taught repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, and that's not just some future thing, but that's something that he brought as a reality um, and, and a, a reality in which he walked in his life and ministry. We now live in a different age. We no longer live under the age of Noah or Moses in the Old Testament, um, but we live under the age, the dispensation, <laughs> if you will, of uh, the New Testament, of the, the Spirit of God, of the Kingdom of God, um, and the ages that have passed are no longer, but behold, new things have come. Um, we live in the age in which the prophesied Kingdom of God has finally come, an age in which a new age has dawned, and it's an age in which the kingdom of God should change our views on violence and bloodshed. And if the coming of the kingdom of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not enough to change our perspectives on violence and bloodshed, um, then I don't know what will. Because the kingdom of God is the only answer in this world for violence and bloodshed. Um, and how to ultimately respond uh, to such. And if, if the power of that kingdom is not enough uh, to make a difference in that matter, um, then all you are left with is empty, hollow, civil religion um, that is fit for nothing more than teaching you how to be nice and make friendly and get rich. <laughs> um, which some of you believe at the end of the day uh, and walk in regarding your faith. Uh, but anyway, that's another matter. 
So, looking at the teachings of Jesus, I like to, of course, uh, give emphasis, as many do on this topic, to the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. As Christians, we are called, first and foremost, to be peacemakers. And by peacemakers, they don't mean Smith and Wesson. <laughs> they don't mean your trusty old six-shooter that you take out of the Wild West. Um, Jesus talked about a radical peace, uh, a peace that ultimately um, you know, surpasses all understanding, according to the apostles. Um, but it's something that you know, we came, uh, Jesus came to ultimately establish in this world uh, through his kingdom. Um, because we live in a world in which the world is constantly and historically at war and employs violence and bloodshed upon bloodshed. Um, we live in a world in which the kings of this world kill the ables of this world. Um, and instead of being people who participate not only in the murder of that, uh, but of uh, the violence in response to it, um, Jesus has nothing for that. He has no place for that in his kingdom. He has called us ultimately to be peacemakers. Um, and peace is a difficult thing. And I find it odd that, you know, many people are willing to die uh, and give their lives for violence sake, for war, uh, for their nation. Um, but not too many people are willing to put their lives out there in order to establish peace and the peace that comes only by the kingdom of God and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 38, also part of the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you that you shall love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons of your father who is in heaven, who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the pagans, do the same. Therefore, Jesus said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if you want to be a perfect son and daughter of God who, who walks in the fullness of his kingdom, who walks in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, who walks in the fullness of the teachings of Jesus, and you want to be a radical, sold-out Christian who does nothing but follow Jesus, well, then don't go for this eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth thing. Don't go for this entire of uh, resisting of evil people by means of violence and retaliation and responding to their threats with threats of the same. Instead, we ought to be a people who not only love our neighbor, but we should also be a people, Jesus said, who love our enemy. And he said, we are to pray for those who want to harm us, who want to kill us, who want to persecute us. We are to love them in the same way that we love our neighbor, and love our families. So don't just think you're all of a sudden righteous because you're able to, I would do anything for my family. I'd kill for my family. I'd kill for my daughter. I'd kill for my nation. Well, that's all fine and good. And Jesus says at the end of the day, the pagans, the Americans, <laughs> have the same kill or kill, uh, kill or be killed um, sort of ethic regarding uh, watching out for their own. <laughs> so, uh, Jesus says, you know, don't resist an evil person. Um, don't return violence for violence. Don't return bloodshed for bloodshed. If you want to be perfect, if you want to walk in the perfect will of God in your life, Jesus said, 
be as your heavenly father would here. <sighs> Pretty weighty stuff. I'll let you ponder that. I'm, I'm not going to give too much more exposition on that. I'll just let that rest with you. Another example from the Gospels, Matthew 26, verses 51-52. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up this sword shall perish by the sword. You know, if you want to see an act of self-defense, <laughs> if you want to see somebody trying to save a loved one, if you want to see somebody trying to stop a tyrannical government, uh, listen to this, my civil libertarian uh, conservative friends. If you want to see somebody who was trying to stop a tyrannical government from killing those um, whom they loved, you know, Matthew 26, verse 51, 52 is a perfect example of Jesus rebuffing that. Peter took out a sword to, to attack uh, the slave of the high priest, the armed guards who were coming to carry Jesus away. And Jesus said, put your sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So the response you're supposed to have as a Christian to a tyrannical, out-of-control government, to a, an Adolf Hitler, if you will, to King George and, you know, the British, <laughs> is ultimately to put your sword back in its place. For Jesus says, those who live by the sword shall perish by the same. And then when Jesus is on trial, uh, we read in John 18, 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting for it so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And we see that kind of, you know, interestingly enough, uh, you know, Peter exact, tried to do that exact same thing. <laughs> Peter tried to, you know, fight back because Peter was still operating off this carnal understanding that Jesus' kingdom was of this world and that he needed to protect Jesus with violence. Uh, and Jesus has said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not a violent kingdom. My kingdom doesn't have any fighting. It doesn't have any drawing of swords. It doesn't have any fighting back because my kingdom, you know, this kingdom that has come, of into this world is not ultimately of this world because that's what the world does the world fights back the world draws swords the world the world tries to establish justice with violence um and it tries to kill or be killed um sort of ethic jesus's kingdom it doesn't have that ethic it doesn't have that mindset and we as christians who are of jesus's kingdom ultimately shouldn't have that mindset either. All right. Moving on from the Gospels, I would like to look at a couple verses from, uh, a couple passages from the Apostle Paul and uh, a couple of his letters where, you know, he kind of expounded on what the, the Christian ethic about these things is all supposed to be. In Romans 8, verses 35 through 37, you know, passage you've heard quoted much but probably haven't given too much thought about in regard to this context the apostle paul says who will separate us from the love of christ will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all the day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered but the Apostle Paul says, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. <laughs> Think about that, folks. The Apostle Paul says, Hey, you know, we are regarded as Christians, as Christ followers, you know, because we're the nonviolent type. Even though we're threatened with sword and we're regarded as sheep, to be nothing but slaughtered? The Apostle Paul says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. So think about that the next time you hear this quoted uh, at your, your 
your Bible studies. Where people talk about, like, yeah, we're going to go get them. Nothing's going to stop us. And, you know, we're eternally secure. And we have all this salvation. And, yeah, we're awesome. Well, you know, consider that with this verse comes the mindset that being a Christian is something that could ultimately cost you your life just for being a Christian. You may become the target and prey of others, of violent men uh, who wish to do you harm with sword. Um, and to treat you as sheep who are to be slaughtered. But the Apostle Paul says, you know, these things, they're not going to separate us here from, from Christ, from his will, from his love. Um, and w- instead of over, you know, conquering these things uh, like the rest of the world does, we're going to overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's the love of Christ that is going to compel us and give us the ability to overcome. We read in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, the Apostle Paul further says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals onto his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So if you want to overwhelmingly conquer like the Apostle Paul talked about back in Romans 8, then, you know, if we're going to overwhelmingly conquer, uh, as we can see in Romans 12, you know, we're going to do our best to be at peace with all men. Um, and we're not going to pay back evil for evil to anyone. Um, and we're not going to try to overcome evil by striking back uh, with our own vengeance. But we're simply going to do good things in response to violence and threats. Uh, And we're simply going to ultimately, at the end of the day, leave it all up to God to take his revenge on our behalf, to make room for his wrath. Um, For as written, vengeance is mine and I will repay. So (laughs) if the Christian attitude towards the threats of violence is to respond with love, and recognize that God ultimately has a reckoning that will come, and that uh, we ultimately entrust ourselves to God to take vengeance and to pour out wrath um, and to protect us and to take care of us and to put down those who are evil. That is God's prerogative. That is God's prerogative. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not for us (laughs) to strike out on behalf of God and be the Lord's vengeance, to be the Lord's agent of wrath. We, as Christians, are not God's agents of wrath. Rather, we are those who are called to be ambassadors for Christ's sake as agents of reconciliation for this world. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3-4, through For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh or carnal, if you might want to quote King James, ha, (laughs) but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We don't wage our war, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the flesh. We don't use carnal weapons to strike back at men, to overcome men and all their evil devices. Instead, we walk according to the spirit. We walk according to the ways of love, and we ultimately entrust our hands uh, into the hands of God. Or, I'm sorry, we ultimately trust our lives into the hands of God, uh, whose prerogative is ultimately to respond to such things. It's not for us. So, my next belief here, uh, next point I'd like to make the belief that Jesus' resurrection should change our perspective on death. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ overcame death. We believe he overcame the devil. uh, And we believe he has ultimately overcome this world. 
uh, and that death has ultimately been swallowed up by his resurrection. Um, and since death has been conquered, um, we should no longer fear it, nor should we use lethal force as a tool to save our lives or the lives of anybody else. But we should instead conquer and hope of our own bodily resurrection, even as Jesus Christ did with his. Um, if we are to overcome violence, if we are over to overcome death and destruction and injustice, we as believers are to do so through our belief and hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that means, uh, <laughs> you know, embracing death, even as Jesus embrace death, even as the apostles embrace death, even as the first and second century churches embraced death, um, then we ultimately cling to our hope and that as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, so he too will give life to our mortal bodies, that we too shall forever live. Because if we're going to ask the real question here, you know, we respond to violence because we fear death. What happens if we should no longer fear death? What happens if death can be overcome by other means and not responding to death with more death, um, but to respond to it with our hope and the mortality that comes with the resurrection? Because should we die one day? Should we die physically? Should we be murdered one day? Should our loved ones be murdered with us? As terrible as that is, that's not the end of the road for us. We as Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead and that belief should shape the way we live in the here and now. Our ethics ought to be different. Our perspective ought to be different in the way we live our lives. And we should not go about this world scared to death of the violence that the world may take upon us. And instead of being scared of the violence and the destruction and the mayhem and the devil and death and all these things that exist in this world and they're terrible, terrible things, we instead, I believe, need to have the attitude that we see about in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven singing, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he who has accuses them before our God night and day. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life, even when faced with death. And I think our, you're going to have to take my gun from my cold dead hands, you know, sort of attitude that we have with the Second Amendment and things of that nature. Um, and our very American sort of ethic about these things is that we ultimately show that we do love our lives. And we, that we love them ultimately too much. And that our spirit and our mindset is ultimately contrary to that which we read about in Romans, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12. They overcame because of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not even love their life, even when faced with death. So if you want to overcome the devil, if you want to overcome the evil forces of this world, if you want to overcome all the injustice, then we need to be the type of people who have a loose hold on this life and in this world. And even though we love life and we celebrate life and we want to establish life in this world and celebrate it in all its wonder and its beauty, that ultimately we are a people of the cross who are not afraid to lay down our lives and to give it up, even when faced with death, because we know the way of overcoming is not through violence and bloodshed and responding tit-for-tat violence sort of stuff, but the way of overcoming is that even in the face of fear and death, that we would be the type of people who beat our swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and that we would ultimately love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us and despitefully use us and want to take our lives and harm us and harm all of our loved ones, and that we would be the type of people who would be willing to say, yes, I will allow you to take my life because I am not living for this world, but I am living for a hope of the world to come and the establishment of the kingdom of God and the resurrection of the dead. That we can be like Christ who says on the cross with his last dying breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We need that sort of mentality. Let us commit our 
spirits unto God and our lives unto God and hope of a resurrection. And only through our hope in the resurrection can we hope to overcome these things. And if we don't hold on to that hope, then we will live like regular men who think they are but animals and treat others in kind as pigs to be slaughtered. <laughs> and, you know, that's the attitude that we have uh, when it comes to those who would harm us. We're just like, well, they're just an animal and we just have to kill them. How can you re You can't reason or love an irrational animal. And there's some truth to that. You may not be able to. And they may kill you. And I have to say, for me, after much wrestling with these things and the perspectives that I've had and the background that I have and the family that I have, that I have to say, yes, they might kill me. And I don't want to die. But I know the way to overcoming death is through hope and my resurrection. A resurrection that Jesus ultimately promises all who ultimately call and follow him. To follow in his footsteps. To follow in the way of life that he taught us to live. To be a type of people who would lay down their lives so that they can pick it back up again. To live in hope. But we often see death as the end of all things. And death still holds its grip on us. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus Christ has overcome this world. And he has overcome through his cross and his resurrection, in which he has conquered death and the devil and this world. And we too can conquer and overcome because of the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony and not loving our lives even when faced with death. Gosh, people, I hope you're getting this. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going all hot Pentecostal on you, <laughs> but I, I believe this to my core and my bones and I hope you will believe it too. And I hope these words which I'm echoing from a far distant corner of the evangelical American Christian world in which no man says these things and we think them just to be the things of liberals. Uh, you know, I, I have nothing to do with any sort of theological liberalism or political liberalism. Uh, I'm just a man who believes firmly in the words of God, the teachings of Jesus, and I want to follow them. And I want you to follow in them as well. I take these things seriously. I believe the death and resurrection of Christ changed the world and it changed the cosmos and it changed the way we are to live and relate to one another and this world. The kingdom of God has come. And in response to it, we need to beat our swords into plowshares and spares into pruning hooks. And we need to realize that, you know, we can't win this world through the violence of this world. But we can only win it ultimately through Christ. And though they slay us and though they kill us, we need to believe that in our heart of hearts, one day, yet Jesus Christ will raise us from the dead. And that's not a bad thing at all. And it's something we can ultimately embrace, as painful as it may be, as difficult as it may be, as much as it may seem like evil men may conquer the world in the process but we ultimately leave it up to the hands of God and realize that vengeance is God's and he will repay. And we can trust him to do such. We can trust that he is the just judge of all the world and that he will ultimately do that which is right. Huh, so, <laughs> had to pause my mic there for a second, folks. I, I don't know how much you'll know, have noticed this, but uh, I had to unwind a little bit because I got a little wound <laughs> there. So, let me uh, kind of step away here. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much my spiel on why we as Christians should, uh, you know, eschew the ways of violence. Um, why we shouldn't really care for much of the way of guns or war. Or any sort of thing like that. But I do want to take a brief moment before we go and talk about um, Romans 13. Because I know you're all thinking it. <laughs> and it's a common objection you'll hear time and time again. Well, what about Romans 13? Um, so let me just toss this out here about Romans 13. Because I you know, want to make you aware that I'm aware of it. <laughs> uh, and want to you know, give you a different thought about Romans 13 than that which you have probably 
thought to date. It says Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which are exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but of evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. But for this, you also pay taxes, and the rulers are the servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to custom, fear to fear, honor to honor. Nothing... Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this it is said, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So what about Romans 13? It says right here that, you know, the government can act as an agent, an uh, angel <laughs> even, um, and a minister of God um, who, you know, we should fear, who bears the sword. And it doesn't bear the sword for nothing. And that is the minister of God, an avenger who brings on wrath to the one who practices evil. And to this, I would say, yes, the government is a minister of God, an avenging angel who God uses to pour out his wrath on those who do evil. Uh, it is sort of a, I guess you could say, natural check that God has put in this fallen world um, to keep the world from just obliterating itself. Um, because without uh, the strong arm of government in this world, you know, uh, it would probably be a pretty dangerous uh, wild, wild west sort of place. But, you know, history has also shown that this same government that was hit here to, uh, you know, ultimately be kind of a check and balance in this world uh, for sinners and wicked men um, has ultimately been a tool uh, to be used by wicked men um, to even inflict ev uh, evil on, on good people to commit atrocities uh, in this world. But I would say this, that whatever goal uh, whatever role government may have and be authorized by God to use violence as an avenging angel that bears the sword um, is ultimately a description here we see in Romans 13 of a description of God's use of a pagan government to carry out his will in this world. And that, you know, if vengeance is mine, I will repay, just as we read about earlier in Romans, uh, that the prerogative of vengeance and wrath here is ultimately unique to God to exact such vengeance and wrath. Uh, and that it is something that God ultimately uses uh, pagan governments to accomplish uh, in regard to his will in this world. Um, but the attitude that we are supposed to have as Christians is not that of the pagan godless government. You know, it's not to be God's avenging angel. We are not God's instruments of wrath. Uh, you know, and we, and we can see that here, how Romans 13 is often quoted on this, but we forget to read the, the verses leading up to it that I read earlier from Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, which uh, immediately precede Romans 13. So if you were to erase those fictional chapter headings that were added, uh, you know, a couple of centuries ago, and you were just to read the text, instead of reading, reading Romans 12 separately from Romans 13, we would read them together. And we would read again in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, which immediately precede these verses on um, Romans 13 about the function of government. We see the Apostle Paul telling us, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own vengeance, but beloved, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance will be mine and I will repay. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then Paul goes into his discourse on the, the, the existence of government and the use of government by God uh, to exact that vengeance. 
Um, so we as Christians, as nonviolent individuals who believe in the teachings of Jesus and who are living according to a different ethic, um, you know, we ultimately leave these things up to the hands of God. And if God so chooses to use government um, to keep some things in check in this world, um, that's God's prerogative, not ours. And, and, and right after, you know, it's funny, we read Romans 13 and we read those uh, couple verses about verses three and four about, you know, it being the, the world being a uh, agent of uh, the government being an agent of God's wrath and a minister of God uh, to bring about a vengeance. But we stop right there and we don't read the rest of what Paul says. We just stop right there. We didn't read before and we didn't read after. And that's a violation of Babel, basic Bible study uh, methods. You know, a, a good general method is to read the verse before and to read the verse after and not just to read an isolated verse. Uh, and if we were to do that, we see the, the nonviolent ethic that Paul taught in Romans chapter 12. And we see him in Romans 13 and the same thing in which after he says, in verses um, 7, 8, 9, and 10, to render all to what is due to them, tax to whom tax, custom to custom, fear to whom fear, honor to honor, and that we are to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who has loved his neighbor has fulfilled the law, for love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul says, hey, God uses government uh, to extract vengeance on evildoers, uh, those who commit adultery, murder, theft, and covet. Um, but you know, if you want to be free from the trouble of the government and not come under God's wrath and judgment in this world, um, then fulfill the law of love and do no wrong to your neighbor because law or love is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. So far from being a prescriptive passage of what Paul says government should do and what we as Christians should do as Romans 13, because we often see Romans 13 as saying us, especially since, you know, um, in America, we, you know, view the people as the government and the government as the people, uh, a government by the people, of the people, for the people, uh, <laughs> to quote, uh, what was it, Abraham Lincoln, I said. Um, but, you know, Paul says, hey, if you don't want to be in trouble with the government, don't do anything stupid. Anything stupid that would cause the government to have to snap down on you. Um, because God uses the government to keep people in check. So don't be among those whom God keeps in check uh, through the sword of government. Instead, Paul says, be a people who love and do no wrong to their neighbor. Because love is the fulfillment of the law and love will keep you out of trouble with the same. So, much more could be said. <laughs> As I said, this is not all exhaustive. This is very basic survey. We could go much, much deeper. Um, but I think I will leave us off here for today. We've gone just a little over an hour. I thank you for listening if you've listened this long. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Jimmy at jimmystable.com uh, is my email address. You can reach me through jimmystable.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'd love to hear your review of the show on Apple and Spotify, Stitcher. Subscribe to it. Share this episode with friends. I would love to have a continued conversation with you on this. Um, you know, this is something I, 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 I've had a complete change of heart on over the years. Um, and it's something I'm very passionate about now. And uh, it's something I hope that you will consider, especially those who would consider themselves conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians and America, um, because I believe, you know, at the end of the day, the perspective that we have as Christians, as evangelical Christians here in America, is uh, ultimately a perspective that is in the late of the word, uh, in the words of the late Art Katz, far too American. Jimmy Humphrey, everybody, episode twenty-two: Why I don't own a gun and would never kill someone. Take care. God bless, and uh, hope to hear from you soon.